Pray with me. Father in heaven, we know that by your word comes grace and peace. And so we pray even now that you would grant to us as we turn our minds to it, that you would give to us life from it, that it would be the very source of our life. You've said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us life by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, uh, in the scripture to 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter in chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 through just the opening words of verse 6. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, just the opening words of verse 6. Hear the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice. Now the question then is do we? That's a very important question. Because you see, if we don't, then we won't be able to receive everything that Peter's going to say from the end of from the middle of verse 6 on. We won't be able to get it. We won't be able to receive it. We won't really be able to live out God's intention for us unless we do really rejoice in this. But even in saying that, that is that we're to rejoice in this, I don't want you to think that this is a command. There aren't any commands, interestingly, in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. From there, he begins to command, but there are no commands in, in, in these first 12 verses. And when Peter says, in this you rejoice, it's not a command, it's a statement of fact. That is, since they understand this, then they rejoice. It isn't... You must rejoice. There are commands in Scripture to rejoice, but this isn't a command. It's simply a statement of fact. He's saying, in this, you greatly rejoice. In fact, I've even added a little word that I read out of the English Standard Version, NIV. It does say greatly rejoice because that's better, really, more the intent of this notion of rejoicing. It's a leaping for joy kind of rejoicing. Not that he expects them to be doing that. That is, that they're going to be outwardly expressing their rejoicing by leaping but it's a deep, sincere, honest, real joy within that they have in this. So it's important, you see, that even uh, in this, they should rejoice. Now, even as I say this, it brings to mind the people to whom Peter is writing. He's writing to a people, as he described them in verse 1, as elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion, that means they're scattered people. Think about that would feel to be described as someone who's scattered. Right? They're just out there in the midst of the world, in the midst of the enemy, if you will. You get that impression that they're exiles, meaning they don't really belong in this place. Well, they're here in the world. They're not really of it. They're quite different. So there's no sense of being at home. 
And these are the people to whom he's writing. In fact, he'll go on to say that they're suffering in various ways, that they're experiencing various trials, no doubt. The sort of normal trials that come from living in a fallen world, that living in a place where there is sin, just the temptation that strikes us, uh, the, the misery that comes to us, be it by illness or unemployment or insecurities or fear or any of that that may happen in our lives, losing those we love. But then it's even more pointed because he said there's a certain amount of suffering that's coming by way of your righteousness, that is, by, by way of persecution. And there's, there's a certain measure of suffering that's coming uh, because of that, either through government or through, uh, as he talks about, the slaves whose masters are treating them unjustly, whether it be even in the context of marriage where there seems to be women married to unbelieving husbands who don't want to hear the word, uh, whether it is because they're doing good and they're being called evildoers by the community because of their righteousness, uh, and these, they're being ridiculed, whether it's physical suffering and pain that's coming, on, coming their way, perhaps even to taking of their lives. See, all of that, Peter's writing to them, but he's beginning by saying, in this you rejoice. Now, it isn't that Peter's unsympathetic to their particular situations. My sense is that if Peter, as the shepherd, or a shepherd as he calls himself, in chapter 5, an elder, if he were making a pastoral visit to a particular person in the midst of suffering, he may begin by hugging them. He may begin by speaking very comforting words to them of, of how sorry he is for the difficulty in which they're going. But really, he would bring them back to this, that this is where their rejoicing must be. So the question is, what is this? Because you see, Peter's laying this out for them so that they can get the right perspective of their whole lives. I've shared this before, but one of my favorite Sesame Street songs back in the day when my children were watching Sesame Street, and so I could legitimately watch it. But back in those days, there was, a, there was this great scene of this airplane. And it was really, really high. And you could peer out of the window of the airplane. And you could see everything below. But everything was really, 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 really small. But then the airplane would take a nosedive. And you could just see the kids go, you know, it's great. Uh, and and it just it shocked them. It's a nosedive. And get very, 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 very close. And everything would get very, 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 very big. And the song that was sung during this time, the words to it were, that's about the size. It's where you put your eyes. That's about the size of it. And, of course, it was teaching about perspective. The farther away something is, the smaller it looks, the closer you get, the bigger it looks. However, that's simply perspective. The truth is, those cars and people and houses always were the same size. They just looked bigger or smaller, depending on the perspective. Now, you see, one of the great difficulties of life is that life and its difficulties pull very close to us. And they seem huge. And God seems quite far removed from us, so he seems quite small. But that's just perspective. And so what the Apostle does for us here is he says, let me give you the right perspective 
Let's bring God up close and personal. Let's bring your problems up close and personal. And now look and see which is bigger. You see, when we talk about magnifying God, we don't mean magnify Him like a microscope, but to magnify Him like a telescope, right? A microscope, you look into a microscope, we all did 10th grade biology, you look into a microscope, it's something very small, and it makes it look bigger. It isn't bigger. You need the microscope in order to see it, because it's so small. But you take a telescope and you look through it into the stars and they look very small. And then through the telescope, it's magnified. It doesn't make it look bigger than it is. It just brings it so that you can see how big it really is. And you see, that's what we're to do with God. When we magnify him, we don't make him any bigger than he is. We just simply get a glimpse of him as big as he is. And so Peter's saying, I know you're suffering. I know you're going through great difficulty. And I'm not unsympathetic. Peter himself went through great difficulty. Jesus Jesus had told Peter how he was going to die. And it didn't appear as if it was going to be pleasant. So he understood all of that. But still he was able to say, in this you greatly rejoice. And so what he's going to be doing is he's going to be bringing this close to us. And this is going to be so big as to be able to make everything else pale in its significance, even though everything else is still significant. Peter isn't saying your troubles aren't difficult. He's not saying your pain isn't real. But he's saying, understand your pain in the midst of this. And if you do, you'll actually find yourself in the midst of your suffering, rejoicing in this. So what is this? Well, we could simply put it like this. It's the hope that we have because of the certainty of our salvation. It's the hope that we have because of the certainty of our salvation. It's the hope that we have because of what Christ has done for us and thus what is guaranteed for us. He says, do you understand, really, first and foremost, before you're going to be able to understand anything else in the context of your life, do you understand the mercy that you've received? Do you understand that by way of this mercy, God has caused you to be born again, to be given new life into a hope that's alive, that's real, that isn't fake, that's real, that you can bank on, that's certain, a living hope in all of this through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And all this, too, an inheritance that's imperishable, that's undefiled, that's unfaded, that's secure. That is, it's kept in heaven for you. And not only that, you're the very people whom God's power is guarding. Through faith, And because, you see, there's a salvation that's going to be revealed, the consummation of your salvation, the fullness of your salvation to be revealed on a particular day when all this inheritance will be yours. He says, never forget that. No matter what else you're experiencing, never forget that. Don't ever think it's insignificant. You see, sometimes life presses against us so, so, so hard, whether they be health issues or death issues or loneliness issues or marriage issues or kid issues or money issues, whatever they may happen to be. The life presses in us and on us so much that, that we seem to, after a while, take our salvation for granted. And all of this other then seems so 
real. And our salvation doesn't seem that real. We kind of put it on the shelf and go, okay, well, I have that. What I really want is a better job. I have that, but what I really need is better health. But I have that, I have that, but what I really need is a spouse or a child or a better spouse or a better child. Right? And so we take our salvation for granted when we should be taking it for granted. That is, it should be the rock upon which we stand. It should be the very foundation of our lives. So Peter's saying, I know you're suffering, but before I can get to that, before you can even understand that, I need to bring this to you. Do you realize the mercy that you've already received from God as a believer in Christ? Do you understand what that means? Do you understand that it means that you really were hopeless and helpless? And do you understand that God's mercy is sovereign? That is, he shows mercy, the scripture says, to whomever he will show mercy. We could find this in a number of different passages, but most quickly in Romans 9, chapter, uh, verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, for he, that is God, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's saying, listen, the reason that you have this hope is because God has been merciful in particular to you. In his sovereign mercy, don't ever forget a believer in Christ, he has saved you. And when we talk about mercy, it's somewhat just spun a bit differently than grace. We know grace to be our, our unmerited favor. We know grace is God's blessing to those who deserve his wrath. We know that. But when we mix mercy in there, it means that God has moved on our behalf because he has compassion for us. God has moved on our behalf because he feels for us. God has moved on our behalf because he's looked at us in our misery. The misery caused by sin. And he says, I'm going to stop that for them. I'm going to change that for them. I'm going to bring them out of that misery caused by their sin. I'm going to remove my wrath from them because my son's death and life will cover for them. And Peter says, don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that you are hopeless and helpless except in his sovereign mercy. And there's a sense in which I think Peter saying, now feel that. Feel cared for. Feel, feel the compassion of God to you to do that. And don't forget that. In the midst of all the other pain, you may be ridiculed for your faith. You may have cancer. But feel this mercy that has saved you. Because it's through this mercy of God. I can't go on without this one. Ephesians, in chapter 2, and verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Now, that's a wonderful expression. This great love with which he loved us. He loved us because he loved us. He loved us greatly because his love is great. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what Peter says. 
He says that according to his great mercy, he has caused us, and there's a good translation of that word caused, he has caused us to be born again. He's given us new life when we were dead, when we were separated from him. His mercy came and, and, and swooped us up and breathed life into us, just like he was merciful, Jesus was, to Lazarus. When Lazarus was dead physically, he spoke life. Didn't do it to anybody else who was dead that day that we know of, just Lazarus, very specific. He spoke life into you because he feels for you. He's compassionate towards you. He says, I love you. I'm giving you life. I'm causing you to be born again. I'm I'm giving you new life, he says. And all of this, to be born again to a living hope, not a dead hope, not a manufactured hope. I love to talk to people about the hope that they have in life and where it comes from. What are you hoping in for this life and the next? And you say, if it's not a hope in the reality of Christ, then we have to make something up. It has to be a hope in our own goodness that God will accept us. It has to be hope that God is actually unjust, so he'll acquit me without any atoning sacrifice. We have to hope that, that maybe this is it and there is no hell, heaven, but this is it. At least it can't get any worse. So what is this hope? We have a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's real. As we thought about on Easter Sunday in Romans chapter 6, that when he died, we died. That was real. And when he rose, we rose to newness of life. And that's real. That's objective, that actually took place. And so our hope isn't on something that needs to happen. Our hope is on something that has happened. Our hope isn't in a philosophy, it's in an event. It's something that took place. We need what Jesus did and he did it. And so we can objectively look at the risen Christ and say, yes, that's my living hope. I'm in him. He's alive. I'm alive. He's with God. I'm with God. He has a new body. I'll get one too. See, our hope is alive because it's in him. He's the living guarantee of everything that God has promised. And Peter's saying, don't lose sight of that. I know it's tough. I know it hurts. But don't lose sight of the mercy, of the life, of the hope that's through this living Lord Jesus Christ. And don't lose sight of this inheritance. Don't lose sight of this inheritance that will, that's imperishable. We, we don't have a category in our brain for imperishable. Everything around us perishes. gets old. It dies away. Everything. And fairly quickly, it seems. Because if it, if it doesn't die in 70 or 80 years, we do. It just perishes. It just loses life, if you will. And he says it's, it's undefiled. We don't have a category in our brain for undefiled. Everything that we see is defiled in some way. Even our worship. But a day will come when this inheritance is ours and everything will be pure. Everything will be holy. 
says it's unfading. We don't know anything about unfading because everything fades, everything drifts, everything changes, but, but not this inheritance that's ours. It's kept in heaven for us and it will never fade. And as we think about this inheritance, we could think about it in a number of ways. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 4, writes this. He says, And when the chief shepherd appears, that, of course, is Jesus, when he returns, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He says, listen, there's a crown of glory, a glorious crown that's in heaven. We can quote our politicians in a lockbox with your name on it for you. It's there and it won't fade. It's as glorious today as it will be when you get there, as it will be throughout all of eternity. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what an unfading crown of glory is, except it will be glorified and be like the risen Christ in some significant sense. It just sounds great. I'm hanging on to that. I don't know anything else in my life that sounds that good. An unfading crown of glory. In this inheritance, you see, it's an inheritance of land. The scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11 that it's a city whose architect and builder is God. Now, I don't know if you think in the context of your earthly inheritance, once you expect, I've tried to lower my children's expectations a great deal. But I don't know what you expect in terms of what you're going to receive. I don't know if it's a piece of property. I don't know if it's a house. I don't know if it's whatever it is. But our inheritance is a city. And it's a city whose architect and builder is God himself. In fact, it's the very dwelling place of God because he's built it not first for us, but first for himself, which means he's going to enjoy being there. And so anything that God enjoys being there is going to be wonderful for the rest of us. And so it's a city whose architect and builder is God. The scripture speaks of this inheritance in negative terms in the sense that he said there's no tears. There's no dying. There's no mourning. There's no pain. There's no disease. There's no injustice. There's no poverty. There's no Satan. There's no corruption. Again, we speak these words and we, we try to imagine what that will be like, but it's so difficult for us because we simply don't know life like that. We don't know life that pure. We don't know life without tears. We don't know life without poverty. We don't know life without injustice. We don't know life without corruption. We simply don't know that. And he's saying, if you can only think of what that could be and the glory of all of that, that's your inheritance and it's safe, it's kept. Don't forget that in the midst of your suffering. Don't forget that in the midst of your living. Don't forget that in the midst of your dying. Don't forget that in the midst of your difficulty, that that is really there. It's really secure. It's kept in heaven for you. Don't forget that, he says. In heaven, there'll be perfect knowledge. Everything that we need to know, we'll know. There'll be no disagreements. There'll be no disharmony among people. Think about the context of your life and all the way from the petty disagreements with perhaps roommates to the very serious disagreements with spouses to the serious disagreements that may exist even in the context of church. It'll be a place where Arminians and Calvinists can worship together. And people who baptize babies and people who don't can, bab- can worship together. And, and people who, who are this kind of church government or that kind of church government or this or that or the other thing, all in Christ can be together. There'll be no 
will fully know. And if you're thinking, yeah, they'll all agree with me, you're wrong, because they'll all agree with me. <laughs> we'll realize how childish and foolish we've been. That's what it will be like. There won't be any loneliness. There won't be any fear of rejection. There won't be any wondering, do they like me or don't they? Because not only will they, but you'll actually be likable. The reason we think people may not like us is because we know the things they might not like. But we'll actually be lovable in that context. None of that will be a concern. None of that will be a thought. We'll become accustomed to living there. Peter thus says, don't forget that. Thus the Apostle Paul can say, our present suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that shall be ours. Don't forget that. It isn't pie in the sky. Pie doesn't even compare to this. Now there's one other point. And this other point is simply this, that you could say, all right, it's kept in heaven for me. That is to say, when I get there, it will be mine. But my biggest question now is, will I get there? I mean, okay, it's there, it's kept, it's safe and secure. All I need to do is get there. Now, will I? That is, will I be able to persevere in faith? Will I be able to continue to believe? Will I be able to, to really live the whole course of my life trusting in Christ so that I get there, I get to this great inheritance that is kept there for me? And the answer is yes, verse 5. We read this who, that is, this, this person who has received mercy, this person who has been born again into this living hope, through the resurrection of Christ, this person whose inheritance is kept in heaven, says, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation to be ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, God's power is guarding us. Now, the word guard in Scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, is used in a couple of different ways, both applicable here. When you place a guard, it does can do one of two things. It can either keep a person from getting out of the place you're guarding or keep people from getting into the place you're guarding. We need both of those. We need to be guarded so we don't leave. And we need a guard posted so that the enemies of our souls don't get in and capture us. And what's guarding us is the very power of God. The power of God that first changed our hearts, that makes it so we really don't want to get out. We really don't want to leave. We really do want to stay. And so the very power of God working in us to keep us in, by the very desires of our hearts, by the very wills of our lives, as God is at work there, keeping us in, you see. So Peter is saying to these people who suffer, don't worry, you won't, you won't suffer so that you'll lose faith that you will leave because he'll guard you by his power. And don't worry, the enemy won't be able to infiltrate to such a degree 
that's going to, he's going to come and actually capture you by his doing. He will be guarded. But notice, this guarding is not <clears throat> apart from us, but working through us. He says this. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. And that makes sense. We know that we're saved by grace through faith. There is no salvation without believing. We enter by believing. We live by believing. The just, those who are justified, those who are saved, the just shall live by faith. So we, this, this guarding us is not apart from our faith. Now just think here with me. If God's power is guarding us through our faith, what must God be doing? That is... If we must maintain faith in order to receive this guaranteed inheritance, what must God be doing in his guarding? He must be sustaining our faith. He must be at work to do that. And there'd be nobody who knew that more than Peter. You remember, there was a day in the life of Jesus when he was quizzing his disciples. And he said to them, who do people say that I am? A couple of the disciples took a stab at it, gave the wrong answer. And then Peter blurted out, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you remember Jesus turns to Peter and says, that's right. For humility's sake, remember that flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. That is, you didn't figure that out. But my Heavenly Father revealed that to you. You knew who I was because of the revelation of God. But you're right. And then you remember, Jesus began to speak after that about his death. And the scripture says that Peter turned to Jesus and rebuked him. Because Peter couldn't imagine, it seems, a dead Jesus. Peter couldn't imagine any hope in life without Jesus being alive. And so he rebuked Jesus as if to say, no, 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 I'll, they won't kill you. I'll make sure of that. And then Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because he realized that at work in Peter at that moment wasn't his father in heaven, but Satan. Fast forward just a little bit in the life of Jesus and you find him with the, his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And he looks at Peter and he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But don't be afraid. I've prayed for you. Your faith will not fail. And thus, Peter writes to a group of people suffering. And he says to them, don't worry, your faith won't fail. And they say, Peter, how can you say that? You don't know what we're going through. It's great difficulty, great trial. How can you say our faith will not fail? And Peter says, because I know the very worst thing I could ever have imagined happened in the course of my life. Jesus got killed. But then I saw him, the resurrected Jesus. And then I knew what he meant, that he had interceded for me, that he had prayed for me, 
and my faith did not fail. I saw him and I believed. You've seen him in your heart's eye. You know the resurrected Jesus. And he is now interceding for you, sustaining your faith. Because all of this, all of this great inheritance that you must never forget about, all of this is being kept in heaven for you who, through God's power, are being guarded through faith. But what if my faith fails? It won't. How do you know that? Because Jesus prays for you. Just like he prayed for me, Peter would say. So that your faith will not fail. That's what we're to rejoice in. We're to rejoice in the very fact that Jesus is praying for us. You heard Leslie read a few minutes ago from John chapter 17 as Jesus was praying for his disciples and for us. Let me read that again. I hadn't planned on this. In fact, I hadn't even thought about that until I heard her reading it. But it really moved me. Let me read this. John chapter 17 and verse 6. Jesus praying. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. Is that amazing? And the scripture says that the Lord Jesus lives to intercede for us, to defend us. He's praying for us. I'm praying for them, not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's the mercy of God. Do you feel that? You're one of those. If you're a believer in Christ, you're one of those. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am am no longer in the world but they're in the world and I'm coming to you. Of course we're in the world. That's the problem, you see. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you gave me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Rejoice in this. In what? In your hope. What's that based on? The mercy of God that's given you new life into this inheritance that's kept for you that can't perish or spoil or fade. That's being guarded through faith that faith for which Jesus is praying. I have given them your word and the world has has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I don't ask you to take them out of the world. If I could amend one phrase, (laughs) beam me up. Uh, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So you see, Jesus prays for us. So if we're going to understand what Peter's going to write, we have to understand that we must be people who understand this, our salvation, and rejoice in it. 
Now the rubber meets the road because I know us. I know that there are people here who are dying of cancer. I know there are people here who are struggling with alcoholism. I know there are people here who in your jobs are being ridiculed by faith, by, because of your faith. I know there are people here who have lost people that you love dearly and feel quite lonely because of that. I know that there are people here who are struggling with pornography issues. I know that there are people here who are studying, struggling with purity issues. I know there are people who are study, struggling here with drug issues and other temptations. I know there are people here who are struggling in marriages and with friendships and with loneliness and all of that. But the first pastoral word is rejoice. It's not unsympathetic. It's the truth. If you're going to be able to deal with all the other struggles, then you've got to know this salvation. And you must rejoice in it, be thankful for it. How can that happen? Only if you bring it up close enough to see how big it is. And you can only do that if, and you know this phrase, we say it all the time, if you preach the gospel to yourself all the time. That you really do say, that's what's eternally significant. That's what really my life is founded and grounded on. It doesn't feel that way at the moment. It doesn't look that way at the moment. But that's really the truth. Don't let a day go by. Don't let a morning go by. Don't let an afternoon go by or an evening until you've thought about the fact that God has been merciful to you to save your eternal soul. So that no, no, no matter whatever happens, you can always say, well, this isn't as bad as hell. It's not as bad as what I deserve. And it's not going to go on forever. Because I know what's going to go on forever. It's going to be, I'm going to be li living in a city whose architect and builder is God. I'm going to be having an inheritance that doesn't perish, that doesn't fade, that could never be defiled, that's always holy, that's always perfect. That's going to mark out the course of my life, so much so that this suffering will ultimately be forgotten. But even more than that, this very suffering, if I know this and rejoice in it, this very suffering will actually prove my faith genuine and I'll be able to see with greater confidence than ever before the risen Christ. But that's next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please, I pray, make us to be a people never to forget, even for a moment, never to diminish, even by the smallest amount, what we have in Christ, what is secure in Him, what will never, ever change, and what must be true if I'm to have eternal life. So, Father, I pray that no matter what else, the thoughts of what Christ has done would always bring us rejoicing deep within. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. It reminds you that uh, elders are available to pray.
in the office area, so please take advantage of that. There are times when our sight is so close it's hard to see God. We need other people around us to speak those words and to pray for us, so please take advantage of that time of of prayer. Wednesday night, dinner, 6 o'clock, remember. The response to the benediction. It's this one. It's, I rejoice in my salvation. Hallelujah. Now, for some of you, that might, be, that might just roll off your tongue as the easiest thing imaginable because life is just good right now. But for others of you, that might be the greatest statement of faith, profession of faith, blessing of God that you could ever do. So please re- receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I rejoice in my salvation. Hallelujah.